Welcome back, everybody. This is Illiterate. My name is Evan. My name is Taylor. I read a book this week. Oh, man. There is too much to watch on this. This week, we are doing the illustrious Philip K. Dick. And the reason we are doing this is because we feel like when we tell you all of the things that he's been involved with, you'll go, I know that. And I didn't know that was Philip K. Dick, because you probably heard of one or the other independently of each other. This guy has dominated the science fiction cinema TV realm the last 30 years. And he's not even been around to witness it. And it was an audience suggestion. Thank you so much. We love getting our suggestions. If you're watching anything, if you're interesting in anything, if you're reading anything, adept to anything at all, let us know what you're into. We're always looking for episode ideas and you never know, we might pick yours. So Philip K. Dick, the literary body of his work is 44 published novels, 121 short stories in sci-fi magazines. And this is only in a 30-year career gone too soon. And just as we'll get into his life, but he struggled with years of drug abuse, mental illness, no real reputation outside of the sci-fi circles, and spent his whole life in poverty. But like you said, so much of it has been adapted afterwards. To give you an idea, here is just a short list of some of the more successful adaptations. Minority Report, Total Recall, A Scanner Darkly, The Adjustment Bureau, The Man in the High Castle, Paycheck imposter. Next. The list goes on and on. And more, the greatest one of all, maybe some would say Blade Runner. Um, Mm -hmm. And Blade Runner is particularly special when it comes to the trajectory of his uh, renaissance, I will say. So yeah, I'm really excited to cover that. Blade Runner is definitely a a film that's really special to me. It's one of a huge influence on me and its sequel, Blade Runner 2049. So some of the basic thematic elements of his work that makes it different from the other stuff out there is the psychological struggles of characters trapped in an environment of illusions, which sounds pretty Mm -hmm. heady, but it's basically what is real? Is this real? Am I real? (laughs) Can you trust anything? All of that ties in. And that's what, yeah. (laughs) Am I a human? Yeah. All of that ties in. And it's very different from other authors of the time because I kind of get them all lumped in together, these authors from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So Isaac Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke, Ray Bradbury, they were all writing bestsellers and getting attention in this space. We know Ray Bradbury. And smoking and drinking together and having a right. jolly old time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> laughing at eating each other. Do- yeah. He's eating <laughs> he dog food. his bills. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the, they're getting their works adapted left and right. And Asimov and Clark did hard science fiction, which just means the scientific logic and accuracy is really important. 2001 mm. A Space Odyssey and the Foundation series, those are their works. But some other things that were influenced by Philip K. Dick, a big one, huge, The Matrix. Philip K. Dick has Mm. a Matrix-like moment in his real life that changes him forever, and we'll get to that when we discuss A red pill and a blue pill, if you will. Basically, yeah. (laughs) So I'll post a link in in the show notes to a speech he was giving on, on the concept in 1977, and he posited the existence of multiple realities overlapping like oh, the matrix wow. world. And so he was, he, and you can look at this video. He literally states, he's like, we're living in a computer programmed reality. And when variables change, it's like deja vu, like the black cat from the matrix. He mentions that there was a woman with a black hair, a stranger that came to show him the truth, which like I said, well, oh. I'll explain all of that, but like, oh my gosh. And, and another, another facet of it is a few of his novels are 
quote, based on fragmentary residual memories of a horrid slave state world. So he's mm. saying, no, I'm not claiming to have seen past lives. Like we're living in a very different present life that is a simulation. Oh, exactly wow. what the major and this so happened this, to him. So we'll, so it's all it, what I'm even just now even realizing is this is there was only one. I mean, his writing and his life and his his thoughts and uh, ideas on how the world worked were all. I mean, that's. Like that is all happening for him all at once. And he's trying to figure it out, figure out his reality that he's living through his writing. Exactly. Uh, So it's very much the enigma of a man trying to understand the the reality at his fingertips. That's really, really important here. And I can't wait to uncover. I mean, this is one that I have been kind of waiting to hear his whole story. I'm a little bit familiar Mm -hmm. with it. I've gone to see Hampton Fancher speak with one of the uh, screenwriters of Blade Runner who did meet with Philip K. Dick before he passed away. So I've had a little bit of insight into it, but I'm just now kind of making the connection of like, oh, man. I mean, that must affect yeah. everything you do, you know? So, and it's oh, like man. not a, not a popular concept to have and not even really something that can be Hollywoodized. It's not a pretty thing to think about that. Nothing is what it You're seems. being lied to. <laughs> exactly. This is all fake. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not something people really want to hear. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> well, we're going to order lunch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just a few more things. So the Truman show is very close to a story he wrote called Time Out of Joint, which came out in 59. Uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, you know, the Charlie Kaufman stuff, being John Malkovich, all of that kind of stuff, paranoia, memory erasure, alternate realities. And then the list goes on just in the past few years, Gattaca, 12 Monkeys, Fight Club, Looper, Source Code, Inception, all of these works are very much inspired by his over 40 novels and 120 stories of these fragmented worlds and the paranoia about what is and isn't real. It's, it just seems to be interesting, the ripple of these ideas. What he's talking about doesn't get seen and explored until Blade Runner comes out, and everybody wants to know, mm-hmm. what is this book? It explodes from there, and so the, everybody's been tearing through his material, all of it, ever since. And the genre that is now credited to him as a last big thing before we get into how he got into all of this is the term cyberpunk, which is it's a lot of different things, but I didn't even realize. Yeah, (laughs) it's a dystopian future setting. And the way that people describe it is focusing on low life and high tech. So it usually mixes the noir crime and detective genres. And Philip K. Dick is the champion of this. He's almost what people would call proto cyberpunk because there was a book called Neuromancer that came out in 1984 that really solidified it. But the movie Blade Runner from 82 solidified it visually, but he had been writing in this style along with some other people. But obviously the Matrix, Akira, Altered Carbon, these all, along with so many other things, including there's a video game that's supposed to be coming out very soon called Cyberpunk 2077. Huge, huge, huge video game. Keanu Reeves is in it as a character. I mean, it's just going to be crazy. And that's all because of him as well. God, I'm well aware of all of this stuff. And I'm even now sitting back, oh my God, this is all, this is all because of Philip K. Dick. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So how, so, so here we go. How did he get into all this Hollywood fame, but not really? He was born in 1928, which is a great year right before the Great Depression. It's really set up for success there. Just born into a boom. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, The world is his oyster. And so he is born prematurely, which his twin sister died 
and he lived, oh, no. and so he'd obsess about this. There's a lot of his works that involve a phantom twin or somebody talking to you from beyond, and this yeah. permeated yeah. his just from the very beginning because he's like, why, why her, why me, yeah. all of that. I mean, it would never leave you. You would walk every step you go. You'd be like, hold on, you know, someone is missing here. And but yeah. you don't even know what the difference is, and your whole life almost is just deciphering the difference between your normal, your normality as you know it, and the normal that you know should have been. Oh my god! And, yeah, and even to the point where on the gravestone they had put both of their names because you know, like I said, they were born oh prematurely. God. It was so unsure. They thought both of them were going to die. So it's got his sister's name and his name but she's dead. It's like he's already got his own gravestone oh, before he's dead. So that's super God. odd and and weird. In terms of his education, dropped out of school after one year of college, sold his first story in 1951 at 22 years old, and this becomes his profession, though it makes him no money at all his entire yeah. life. His first story, it was based on his neighbor's dog, and the story is called Rug, and it's about a dog who imagines that the garbage men who come every Friday morning are stealing food, which the family has stored away in a safe metal container. Huh. And Rug is what the dog calls the garbage man, and he's barking at them, and he's using that term, and the people don't understand. And he's like, can't you see? You're, you're hiding this, and people are stealing it. And it's just great, because even though it's silly, it's kind of sad, and it's also yeah. very much about the perceptions of reality. And it yes. would make sense that a dog would think that that's happening. I mean, it's a beautiful concept even there. I mean, it's this is just a very normal dog sees something go into can. Somebody else comes, collects from can, you know. <laughs> right. uh, you, they, they smell the thing. So it's it's immediately, it's just a simple shift to perspective. Okay, well, if you didn't know anything. I mean, that's really about putting yourself in the shoes. If you, what is a dog mm -hmm. now? And right, you have turned it on its head into a sci-fi concept without touching anything. <laughs> yeah, and it's I mean, literally really. the first the first thing he's done at 22. So one thing that he is known for as we continue in his works, his incredible productivity, the numbers speak for themselves. But time-wise, he oftentimes completed a new work, either a short story or a novella or a whole novel every two weeks. Because at oh certain points, he was writing four novels a year. I mean, it's crazy how much he was doing. So his first full novel was in 1955. And like we said, he lived in poverty all through the 1950s. He said, we couldn't even pay the late fees on a library book. And what's crazy about this is he regarded sci-fi as the last resort. Like He did not want to be in this genre. He did not want to be lumped in with these people. He always dreamed of making it in the literary scene. He thought, maybe even if it takes me 30 years, I'm going to get <laughs> in the likes of Ray Bradbury and all these other people. Um, so I want to divert just a little bit to talk about his style, what he is developing here and why he doesn't like sci-fi. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because he, he's a, he, if you look at his work, he doesn't really care about robots or space travel or all of the stuff that sci-fi is known for. And he didn't all like the, the juvenile. Yeah, and all the juvenile sensibilities around it, the, the world of it that just seemed very low brow. He was not into that at all. Really, what he ends up writing about is ordinary people in a web of either corporate conspiracy or media conspiracy or memory or fake realities. Mm -hmm. Like we said, it's all of that stuff. And he has a great essay, which I'll post a link to. And he's saying the two basic topics which fascinate him are A, what is reality? And then B, which we haven't talked about quite yet, is what constitutes the authentic human being. 
and he mm-hmm. says he's been r- wrapping his head around those things for the 30 years that he was writing. And it's interesting because you could argue that he never really gets a grip on reality and he does have a lot of flaws yeah. as a person and how he responds to people. But he was sure. not a nihilist when it came to humans. Like he did have a very strong sense that humanity meant kindness really? and empathy to all living creatures. There's a great example from one of his books. The book is called Now Wait for Last Year. And at the ending, it's this guy who's thinking of ditching his wife because she has a brain disorder. She tried to kill him. Their marriage is crumbling. Just There's a tons of other stuff that goes on. But the robot taxi driver is at the very end. And he asks the robot taxi driver, like, what would you do in this situation? Yeah. And the robot simply says, well, life is this reality and it's configured as such. And to leave would be to say that you can't endure this reality. And so there's one choice and the guy thinks, well, is that the choice then to leave her because we can't do with this? And the robot's like, no, I would stay because the choice isn't to leave. The only choice is to stay and love this person. And the guy's like, yeah, I guess you're right. And the robot calls him a good man and he gets out of the cab and that's the end and the culmination of this whole story is humans. That's what humans are and that's what they're for, which is fascinating when you look now at cyberpunk and these really heavy sci-fi concepts that he was locked into that aspect of it but he was like what is the reality of that what well, seems to be that to have it not come out so i guess so far-fetched and crazy that to leapfrog forward to a different type of different planet different time different everything around you so that you can really talk about the wild thoughts about what is the fabric of the reality around you you have to elevate the aesthetics of all of that to get to the root of the thematics that's why genre works that's why Mm -hmm. taking things so you can take a, a a relevant drama right now something going on right now in politics throw it 3,000 years in the future and recontextualize all of it. And only then can you maybe actually begin to really talk about it in a way that Mm -hmm. can add anything to the conversation instead of just setting it right here and right now. (laughs) Yeah. You know, Uh, it's, it's so interesting that the ways that he is weaving in these big questions that he is consumed by. Uh, And and just, just I I wish it wasn't so arduous for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So here's where we go to the problems mounting. All so seems like, all consuming. Yeah. Yeah. The downside is he really does have a super strong paranoia and eccentricity that often gets sidestepped. And so delving into that, his dream of the mainstream died in 1963 because alongside all of this stuff, he had sent a dozen of non-sci-fi novels, his attempt at getting into the literary scene. All of them were returned as not good, never to be published. There was only one that was published later, but he decided, oh, that's it. That's the end. So in this interesting- What happened to those manuscripts? They might be out there, but only one of them was actually published by a publishing house. Oh man, yeah. it would be amazing to actually see what those were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just, I mean, what was he just trying to get noticed by? That's not. I mean, he got noticed on all the on the flashy, crazy stuff. What was him being normal? You know, what well, <laughs> one of the yeah the, the one that did yeah. the one that did get published was called Confessions of a Crap Artist, and it's about this guy who's living in 1950s California and the struggles with marriage, which is exactly what he was having. Well, so it's kind go. of the same stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, but oddly, in this same year of total rejection, he won the Hugo Award, which is the highest award you could ever get for science fiction for his book, The Man in the High Castle. 
which is now or was the Amazon TV show. So Huge both Amazon it's, it's, show. it's pushing him in that direction. But even though he gets this award, it's supposed to be this amazing thing. He could only publish his work through these low paying sci-fi publishers. So he's still poor and unknown. And that doesn't uh, change that much. <laughs> no, well, it doesn't. Okay. Now, speaking, like we said, of his paranoia, eccentricity, all of that stuff, it's now into the 70s. He's had multiple failed marriages. And the big thing is he is abusing amphetamines. He, oh, no. You might think that these other crazy ideas come from LSD or hallucinations or something of the like. Supposedly, he only took them a couple of times and didn't like it, but it's very well cataloged that he had a regular regimen of uppers and downers by the handful, and even oh, he himself man. was worrying that he was turning schizophrenic. At this early part of the 70s, he's living with other drug users. One of his marriages is oh, over. Gosh. He was married, by the time he died, he was married five times and had three children with three of those women. Um, oh, wow. Some of his other mental health problems, he had major agoraphobia. So, for example, one of the daughters spoke out and said, I didn't know much about him because he was all over the place when I was growing up, but he said he was going to take us to Disneyland 30 minutes in. He said his back hurt, but now I realize, oh, he was scared to death of crowds. One of his wives said sometimes he couldn't even make it out to the mailbox to deliver a letter. Mm -hmm. He just had tons of problems with that. And then using the drugs to fuel yeah. his insane writing regimen uh, hours and, and like, hours a day. It's hard to talk to anybody about this unless you like – Make it into an interesting story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, so that's God. what he's doing. Can you, yeah. I can feel the loneliness in it. Mm -hmm. That's the thing that's gripping me about it is that it seems like this whole, I mean, he sees the world in a different way or at least sees some cracks in it and he's really wanting to uncover it and he, like, he wants to understand and he wants you to understand and he just you know mm -hmm. <laughs> it seems that I, I feel the desperation in it almost of this yeah please ha have this conversation with me almost <laughs> so this is his longest period of non-writing between 1971 and 1974 there was a situation where he had come back and his home had been burglarized and some of the people because they couldn't find the culprits there was no explanation why they would take his personal papers some people think he had done it in some sort of drug induced state oh gosh um he he went to canada for some convention and he was determined that he was going to stay there because he felt like he had no life where he was in california he'd fallen in love with this woman but he was mm -hmm. being super erratic so she was not into him and in 1972 he tried to commit suicide Went to a recovery program, realizing it was for meth, but he's like, I, I'm not addicted to meth, but I need something here. So he yeah, I need went through the program, gosh. returned to California, and all of that that I just mentioned becomes the bulk of a lot of the plot of a scanner darkly, the burglary, the drug abuse, the recovery. If you don't know what a scanner darkly is, it's a beautiful Richard Linklater film that stars Keanu Reeves, Woody Harrelson, and Robert Downey Jr. And the whole film has been rotoscoped over, where they have shot the film, but then over it they have they have drawn over it and put this beautiful dream, almost LSD-like aesthetic on top of it, uh, where yeah. it feels almost like you're watching an animation at times. Uh, it is it is quite exquisite. Um, so I can't recommend that enough. But yeah, that is a wild, wild story and probably the truest yeah. you could get to Philip K. Dick's actual experience and what's going on in his head. And, and specifically this time in his life, the most autobiographical thing that isn't a dystopian future. And by his admission, I found this is the first novel he had written without the use of amphetamines. Really? 
which is interesting because all of his other oh stuff, gosh. he was he was constantly on pills. So now wow. we come to 1974, the end of his fast of writing and this Matrix-like incident that I was alluding to at the beginning. Yes. What is this uh, yeah. road diverged? And what is this crossroad? <laughs> yeah. And it, it, part of it as I describe it might seem, you know, silly or absurd or comical, but as you go into it, it's kind of, like I said, a man really struggling with all of these and complications. how old is he by now? So he is 46 in 1974. We're, we're getting through middle aged and 50 mm-hmm. is on the other side. The 46 years of loneliness trying to, <laughs> trying to figure this stuff out. It's you yeah. know, this, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Back to 1974, he was recovering from a dental procedure. He's on painkillers. There was a delivery girl that shows up at the door with more medicine, the the dark-haired girl. And there's this crazy pink light. And then immediately after, he has a series of visions. And so this is where the simulation thing comes in. He assessed that she was a visitor from classic Rome. He came to the solution that the 20th century didn't exist. He was dreaming. He was a sci-fi writer. And he has a quote. They said, it's as if I had been insane all my life and suddenly I had become sane. And it's not like I said, like this cute, crazy, like in a beautiful mind. It's like madness, like hell on earth, because he had believed sincerely that humanity inhabited this universe where timelines unspool at the same time. And he's living in a parallel existence as an early Christian during ancient Rome, that the Roman Empire never ended, kind of like in the matrix where these sentient machines take over and imagine you're in right. 1996 or whatever it is, and you're being controlled in this simulated reality. So in the following months, the visions continue. He ha- he sees ancient Rome superimposed over his suburban neighborhood where playgrounds look like prisons and pedestrians are wearing military uniforms from the Roman times. There's stone walls. He's like, I hadn't gone back in time. He had written to a friend, but in a sense, Rome had come forward. So like I said, he believed that time had stopped in 70 AD and everything is an illusion as the Roman Empire has continued. And even in this time, he knew that his this madness would come across as mental illness. He himself called himself a quote, flipped out freak. But it was interesting because shortly after this time, he actually felt more guided. Like there was, like I said, like going from insane to sane. Yeah. It flipped the other way. So he felt more guided and took better care of his health. Well, um, okay. Good. But unfortunately, that's short-lived. The guiding mm. spirits left, and he attempted suicide for a second time. Oh. Um, all alongside this, and it's crazy because this was just published fairly recently within the last decade, he wrote an 8,000-page, 1,000,000-word commentary on his thoughts on all of this. And it's called The Exegesis where he expands on his theory of the pink light source. And it's basically all his theories. So it's not just like, oh, this is the Roman empire. Like it's, he's equally as confused about it all because he's talking about God, the KGB, satellites, aliens, this first century Christian telepathy, a version of himself from other dimensions, or maybe even it comes back to his deceased twin sister from the spirit world. Like all of his thoughts on philosophy, reality, everything, this massive, massive document. And there was a book that he wrote later called Valis, and it's literally this idea about the pink light and this person actually being in this reality, and it's ancient Rome is now, all of that stuff is written as a fiction book. Whoa. 
like we said, just this is overwhelming. His, yeah, his life. So he's going through all this. And like I said, I'll post links. There's the moment where he is at a conference giving a speech and is explaining this to people and everybody's looking on like, and he's like, no, 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 I'm serious. Like he has to say, I'm serious. Oh my this God. is happening. It's, it's pretty wild. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. It's overwhelming. Yeah. That is yeah. like, yeah. I, I, that is so much more serious than anything I ever thought. I never knew he had such a break from reality. And it's almost like the if he had had the fame in his life, he couldn't be in crowds. He couldn't. It would have been no. even no. more of a break. It would have only been even more all-consuming. He would have only had more to think about. The access he would have gotten to just seeing how other things in, in reality work. Oh, my God. He would have been – I mean, he would have been completely it's overwhelming. Paralyzed. Yeah, yeah. So – now we finally get to the film world, which is just happening at the end of his life here. It's 1977. There's this guy, Brian Kelly, who is best known as the dad on the TV version of Flipper. Very mm. odd. But, <laughs> you know, odd person for an odd piece of work at the time. He wanted to option Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which is the title, which the movie is Blade Runner. And he got mm -hmm. it for 2500 bucks, which sounds so low. That's in the, in amazing. The, in the world. <laughs> but <laughs> Phil was fine with it because he's 49 years old living in Orange County. His stories are selling for a hundred bucks. Like that's amazing. Right. So he's just like, you give sure. me $2,500. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, Brian Kelly and his partner wrote the screenplay. Eventually it got to Ridley Scott who had just done Alien. He brought in a new writer, sent it to a producer who then got Harrison Ford. You know, all of the story of how it gets put together takes a little bit Off longer. Off to the races. Dick had said that he had seen some of the special effects, and though him and Ridley Scott differed wildly on the viewpoints, he ended up backing it because he was like, this looks like what what my book is. So then the movie's in production, and that's a whole other nightmare. Yeah, that's a, that's a whole <laughs> other thing. On like, There's a two-and-a-half-hour documentary about the making of this film. If you're not familiar oh, wow. with it, it is one of the most arduous, famous, troubled productions in all of Hollywood history. Something uh, like seven this, different versions. Oh, yes. Uh, up up yeah. until 2001 or 2007, I think, there have been s several different cuts. There's a huge debate as to what is the proper version of the film <laughs> what was the intention behind it i mean and the intentions behind these different cuts can vary wildly yeah. um, so there's a whole world of blade runner lore and myth and and how that piece of art actually came to be or never actually settled on what it was just the making of that film alone there's a great book about it and there is a, a full-fledged documentary about how insane the process of making the film was yeah um that's a whole other thing that's more on the <laughs> that's more the of a cinema side, yeah. talk than anything so how do you make a movie <laughs> so yeah about um, this and knowing yeah. philip k dick like god what this this thing is great like there's so much to it how are we going to put this on in two hours yeah, um, I mean, it is so heady. I mean, it really is taking a stab at, well, what is being human? And then, well, then if what is human, what's reality? I mean, it really is going at the big yeah, things that he <laughs> that, uh, that Philip seemed to be uh, mostly concerned with. And mm -hmm. they take a running jump at it. Mm -hmm. This is, I mean, if you're not familiar with Blade Runner, it is not some action Harrison Ford Star Wars film. Yeah. This is an avant-garde, slow, heady uncomfortable film uh yeah. if you've seen the film alien by ridley scott uh, take alien and drag it out another mm -hmm. hour and make it make it feel 
really dirty, mm-hmm. uh, but it's still in the future. And we, uh, yeah. it, it is quite an experience on its own. I do recommend personally, I think the final, the final cut is what it's called, is the cut to watch. Just be ready to like go on a, on a journey, get some tea and cuddle up with a blanket and just right. meditate. <laughs> so yeah, this, yeah, this thing is going to come out in 82 and it's gone through all that production madness. That same year after an interview, Philip Dick complained of poor eyesight to one of his therapists. He was told, we'll go to the hospital, but he didn't. And then was found on the floor of his house the next day because oh, he suffered no. a stroke a few days later, while he was in the hospital, suffered another stroke, went brain dead, and then was disconnected from life support. And he was 54 after 30 years of straight writing and then buried next to his twin sister, Jane, like I said, since both oh of their gosh. names were on that headstone from her death as a, as a child. And four months later, Blade Runner is released into film. So he never saw it in the theaters. Um oh. And it got at the time medium to even low success. Like you said, yeah, long, it was not heady, some big smash. not action. This is the 1980s. Like they're looking for the big Raiders of the Lost Ark. All exactly. Of that stuff. Raiders is out. Star Wars is out. It's Harrison <laughs> Ford. Alien is out. It's Ridley Scott. Here yeah. we go. We're going to go after, we're going to hunt down the androids. And then yeah. it's just it's long not. establishing shots. <laughs> So it seems like, God, can Philip K. Dick catch a brick even after death? Like, this is going to be another bust. What is, ha- you know? So I found, I would say, two things that kept it going that saved this whole enterprise and perhaps didn't keep him in obscurity. One of which is the home video market. So this is what yes. caused oh, Blade man. Runner's reputation to build during the 1980s the accessibility of it, the cult status, people wanting to see it. Two, there was this guy, Ron Shusset. He was a screenwriter on Alien, and he had bought the rights before Phil died to the story, We Can Remember It For You Wholesale, which he then oh, retitled wow. Total Recall, which then became one of the biggest hits of the 1990s, which started Hollywood. Schwarzenegger. Yeah. And that was more of the massive action stuff, but it, it fit a lot with the, is this real, is this not? That was the main very premise much. of it. So it kept very close to- his original intentions, but that and started that reverberates just going back to yeah, something yeah. we mentioned earlier of the things that these ideas start to reverberate that, that very idea of like, hold my, am I in a dream reverberates all the way through to an inception, uh, Christopher yeah. Nolan's inception <laughs> when they have their dream universe and people decide they just want to stay there. And then you have dream bars and people just hook up and this, like mm-hmm. that is the extension of that thought. Look at the, the, the rise of VR right now. What would mm-hmm. Philip K. Dick think of VR. He would go, this is it. This is the window. This is what I, you know, like I I can't even like, and the the steps we're taking as a species to what is this technology that we are really starting to put in every house and home right now? Yeah. Um, And what are the worlds and questions that this new technology are going to start to really present to us when it gets even better? That's the kind of stuff Philip K. Dick was concerned about. And we're walking towards it every day and we're still bringing up his questions directly. Oh my God. And we probably am I, wouldn't. Am, yeah. am I in a dream? Do I like this better? If it was, yeah. if it wasn't, what's wrong? You know, all of that stuff. Yeah. And it all stems from these guys who happened upon the short stories and then bought the rights before he died. Because that's how and Total Recall all, came out in the 90s. Yeah. This is stuff happening right now. Amazon's Electric Dreams, which is an anthology series. It's not, I don't know. Do, do you know much about it, Taylor, as how much they might have pulled from his writing? 
Yeah, they pulled from his writing. That was several of his different short stories. Yeah, that's just two years ago. Um, the the long awaited sequel to Blade Runner just came out in 2017. Yeah, this his property is just one of the hottest things in Hollywood right now, and it seems insane that the thing that really got all this going, the rights were just handed off for twenty five hundred dollars. Well, so the thing with the rights, so like we said, Total Recall came out in the nineties. Blade Runner is building in reputation through the eighties. This starts the Hollywood people looking into his short stories. But like mm -hmm. I said, these two authors and the guy who had done Alien or worked on Alien had already gotten the rights, but Philip K. Dick died without a will. So his estate remained through legal practices unsettled for 11 years after. Oh my God. So this is why there's this gap in the late 90s of nothing because we're trying to figure out how do we pay for these things and who gets, what's going on with all of this. So when it who finally- do we pay? And he has five wives and three kids from three different, you know, oh, it's like it's a whole no. mess. So when it uh. could be squared away, his agent, and I'll just run off the list, sold Time Out of Joint, which we said Truman Show was close to, to Warner Brothers, a scanner darkly to Soderbergh who produced it. Jim Henson got King of the Elves, which I think Disney has now. M. Night Shyamalan's usual production company oh, took paycheck. Minority Report went to the Total Recall dudes who showed it to Tom Cruise, who then showed it to Spielberg. And so that was that string that is still coming out today oh, of all of that yes. stuff that people are picking up on. From a producer that's in Hollywood, they were saying, it's very difficult to be true to Phil Dick and make a Hollywood movie. He questioned everything Hollywood wanted to affirm. And Spielberg, I think maybe people would say, it's like he was more interested in the morality of with the Minority right. Report before the paranoia of that kind of thing. It's so like a, it's like the simplification filter <laughs> of Hollywood. It's like, oh, okay, Philip. Well, maybe we could make this more about just whether it's like a bad thing to cheat on your wife. Yeah, <laughs> just the it's morale, like, yeah. like trying to yeah. simplify it, boil it down, mm -hmm. walk it back a step. Uh, yeah. And there are cases where that works, and in, in and there are cases where it doesn't work, and they take too many steps back. They oversimplify. Yeah. Um, and but, now his his estate. It's an exorbitant fee. They're like, we are purposefully. It's interesting because when they started out, it's like, sure, take it for 2500 Who cares? But now, because of the high demand, they are very, very particular and will only sell to people who are also esteemed a la Amazon, who yeah. they know can make it for hundreds of millions of dollars and make it work. So speaking of his legacy, just one last maybe lighter note thing that I found in spite of all of his tragedy and, and confused. Yes. His, um, he yeah. actually has lived on in the form of an android, which I don't know if he would be happy about <laughs> what? or not. What? So <laughs> this happened in, uh, in 2005. <laughs> it's this guy, David Hansen, who ran, I guess he still runs, a robotics company, and they built an android replica of Philip K. Dick. So they're testing this new like rubberized skin facial technology and built this full-scale model of him, you know, he sits on a chair or whatever, but his head moves and it's got all these, almost like an animatronic thing. They got clothes that were donated by his children and the algorithms and sensors and whatnot are loaded with his entire body of work, all of the interviews he's ever done. And if a question has been asked that the algorithm can relate to what has already been created, it would be in his own voice or the software would construct other responses similar oh, to what he would have said. Very, very God. cool was you know shown at all these places and David Hansen in 2006 he was on route to Google to present it to Google because it's this cool new thing in the airport he left the duffel bag with Philip K Dick's head 
in the what? in the airplane when changing planes. He forgot it <gasps> in the overhead bin. So he no. made some. <laughs> it's just out in the ether. He made some. No. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't recover it. So they well, never so he, recovered it. <laughs> he makes some. He makes some frantic calls, and it was located. It made its way to Orange County. And they had recovered it, and it was placed on a flight to San Francisco, where he was going to Google headquarters to be reunited. Uh, he got there, and the head just never arrived. So it has never been recovered. Somewhere no! oh in between. <laughs> Which I think, personally, is the most fitting thing, probably, for Philip <laughs> K. Dick to, to be transformed into an android, <laughs> and then... Just have your head lost in the bureaucracy of a mega corporation. It's Never almost like seen he, again. he chose, yeah, it's like his head gained sentience. And just chose never oh. to be to get lost in the system. Which is what most of his characters are, <sighs> wondering what is what does it all mean? I hope, oh my God, I hope he would laugh at that. I hope he would yeah. smile with us about that. Because it seems, I mean, the, the trajectory of this man's life coupled with the wild success that spans art mediums across the board from the 1980s until right now is just, it's wild. And it's a really, really sad, sad story. So to hear an anecdote where the, where somehow he has been re-embodied and lives on somewhere and still somehow, like you say, just gets trampled <laughs> and lost and, and muddied up and mucked and just... Yeah, <laughs> it's just kind of it's. Uh, oh man, it's beautiful. <laughs> it's Thank a beautiful you so thing. much, Taylor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, this was wonderful. I hope you guys enjoyed this. If you want to get in touch with us, reach out at Illiterate Pod on Instagram. Let us know what you're reading, what you're watching, what you're interested in, what shows are coming out. You never know; we might pick yours as a topic for an episode, and we will catch you next week. Yeah.